and we've been looking at how life looks as believers living in Babylon. Historically, for Daniel and the Jews, they were in the actual city of Babylon um, in the early 6 to 500 BCs, um, but now we're not in that city, but we're in a world that embodies and reflects a lot of what we see in the book of Daniel. So we've been going week after week looking historically at the narrative account of Daniel, of men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looking at the kings of Babylon like Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, um, because Belteshazzar is actually Daniel's Babylonian name in case you didn't get that. Okay, all right. And then you got the Medo-Persian Empire and and Cyrus and Darius, the kings of of that empire, um, and, and... on and forth, and we're going to finish it out today, all right? We're going we're gonna to finish out the book of Daniel. Last week, we were in chapter 7, and there's 12 chapters in the whole book, um, and we've been going chapter by chapter, so as you can imagine, and you can see, I'm, I'm condensing a lot into just today, and the reason why I'm doing that is because, bottom line, there's not much to preach on out of it. I'm just going to be with you. There's a lot for you to get out of it. There's a lot for you to be enriched as you read it, but As we saw last week, starting in the seventh chapter, it's kind of this transition to uh, prophetic visions that Daniel is now having. It goes from that historical narrative to focusing on Daniel's having these wild visions. Last week, we looked at the first of the visions recorded in this book with the four beasts that Daniel saw. Uh, I I described it as somewhat of a nightmare, and Daniel's physical composition was one that was distraught and worried. And you read throughout the remainder of the book, it's very similar. He has other visions throughout the book that leave him in a similar physiological state. Worried, sleep-deprived, sleep-deprived, sick to his stomach, um, can't, can't stop thinking about it. What he's seeing in these visions is taking a big toll on this man of God. Um, and so I'm going to summarize essentially some of what, some, not all, but some of what I think are the the last tidbits of what we can glean from the remainder of the book of Daniel rather than belaboring it. Um, And I'm excited for how it's going to segue us into this season of hope where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, So today for the final message through the book of Daniel, um, the title of the message is this, History Matters. Um, In fact... When it comes to history, uh, this isn't just history of nations, it's not just history of of the globe, it's not just histories of a people, but it's also your story. Mm -hmm. History applies to you and your life. Um, And so what I would say to you from the outset is this, how you tell your story matters. And how people tell their own story matters. Um, We just celebrated Thanksgiving for those of you that were blessed to be able to be a part of family gatherings. Uh, You might have experienced what many of us do, in fact, experience. Sitting around a table with good food, with family, with friends, and inevitably, conversation turns to past events. It turns to history. And stories are being told about what life was like in the past, especially when it comes to siblings. Think siblings in this moment. I have two older brothers. And it's inevitable that whenever we get together for family functions and we're sitting around a dinner table, stories are told about our past. And I'm the youngest, so of course they love to just tell stories about me because I'm the greatest. (laughs) 
no, uh, because I'm the annoying little brother, uh, who, who's really a little brother, because brothers are five and seven years older than me. Um, so I was a pest to them. But here's the deal. I remember my story and that part of our history way differently than they do. Because to them, I was the annoying punk. And to me, I was God's gift to the earth. I don't know why you're laughing. That wasn't a joke. I still think that. No, I don't. <laughs> um, you all might have experienced that before, whether it be with family, friends, spouses, you name it. Stories uh, start to get told, and they might be told a certain way, in all seriousness, where even if in times you embellish your own story, you're like, as a matter of fact, uh, excuse me, that is not how that happened. I'm going to correct that because you are embellishing this story. Um, but it all starts with phrases like, do you remember that time when? And here I am at the dinner table like, oh my gosh, here we go. We're never going to let this go, are we? And let me hear the lies. How has the story changed this year from last year? Because it changes every year. Uh, one of these years, I'm going to be the devil incarnate, which is a joke. Um, see, we, we, depending on how we tell our story, or even hear the stories of other people, or remember shared history with each other, um, we develop certain opinions and feelings towards people and the way, in the way we retell their story. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about when you're telling somebody else's story? Oh, do you remember that time when you're talking about the other person? And even if it's embellished for the fun of it, there might be times where you've been deeply hurt by the person or you just experienced deep hurt. And now that narrative keeps changing about that person. And every time you tell that story, that person gets worse and worse and worse and worse. How you tell a story radically impacts your opinion, your perspective, and your feelings of the people around you and your own self. Um, history, stories of, of, of life and, and countries and societies in this world um, shapes public policies. It shapes legislation. It shapes school system advancements and policies and procedures and so much more. It's, it's all about stories. It's all about our history, and we look back to our history, appropriately so, to learn from it and to move forward. But that being said, we've got to recognize that as important as history is, it's equally important how we remember it and how we tell it. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. To all the third childs in the room, oppressed by older siblings. Um. Have you ever heard of the essay, it's a re recent essay, I think it was written either 2021 or 2022, I think it was 2021 actually, um, it's called On the Historical Union of Russians and Ukraine. Anybody heard of that? All right, good. Uh, I wouldn't have expected you to. It's, it's an essay or a manifesto, a personal um, account of philosophies and ideas and opinions and beliefs based on a perspective of history written by Vladimir Putin. And if you read on the historical union of Russians in Ukraine, you'll see all of the justification and all of the reasoning based on history from the mind of a man and why he thought it just to attack Ukraine. 
I'm not here to uh, argue the politics of it. I certainly don't agree with it and pray for the people in Ukraine regularly who unfortunately, because of what's going on in Israel between Hamas and Palestine, it feels like Russia and Ukraine have been forgotten. Not that one is more important than the other, but it's just amazing. Look at what's, what's culturally a hot topic. That's what gets focused on at the expense of everything that's going on around the world. Um, so just think about that when you get so emotionally charged because of what the media is feeding you and you adopt it as your own belief. Really check yourself in that moment. Because um, I don't know that it's your opinions. Anyway, um, this is actually similar to something called Mein Kampf. Have you ever heard of that? It's an autobiographical manifesto written by Hitler with essentially the same exact type of writing. Hitler's going through why he believes things are a certain way, looking back at history and sharing some of his philosophies and his perspective of the Jewish people and why a Holocaust was necessary and why ultimately there needed to be an eradication of the Jewish people. It's his understanding and retelling of history that has shaped who he is. Men like this, who destroy nations and peoples. It all comes down to their philosophies, their theologies, their ideologies, ultimately are rooted in a story. Our faith is rooted in a story. It's not just the theologies that we have that have been surmised and deduced and understood and extrapolated and exegeted from Scripture have come from a historical narrative and laws written accounts of real people living real life. History is beyond essential to our lives, and it's important to understand that how we tell it matters. How we understand it matters. So let me say it to you a couple of other ways. The way that you think and feel about your past, your history, shapes your identity and personality more than you think it does. Like, like really, I'm, uh, I'm telling you, um, there, there's something that I'm trying to figure out how we ourselves as a church can figure out how to go through. It's called the, uh, it's, it's a book written by an author called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, it, it's, it's a whole course that you can take that helps you. It's, it's, it's a thoroughly Christian uh, evangelical uh, author that really knows his stuff. Um, anyway, I'm getting beside the point, but he talks about you've got to understand your history. Whether you have had the most traumatic past or you have had the essentially perfect childhood, it has shaped you somehow. Your ideologies, your theologies, and your beliefs have been shaped by your history. There's no escaping it. It's not to say that you're a slave to it. It's just to recognize that's the way that it is. We're all different people because of our histories. So until you deeply wrestle with your past, listen, until you deeply wrestle with your past, you cannot fully understand who you are in the present. And I'm not talking about necessarily your best self that you're trying to uncover. I'm just saying who you are. Because what I believe is that within this process, we need to understand who we fully are so that we can give that self to God and say, God, here I am. Take me, mold me, work on me as I now understand myself as I am. Otherwise, there's an incongruence between our self-awareness and who God really has called us to be. 
Because we're walking unsure of who we are, and then we're understanding theologically, God, here I am, take me, mold me, use me for your purposes, but they're always clashing and we don't know why. But we know there's an incongruence. We know there's a conflict. Your history matters. So let's come back to Daniel. Daniel, all these last chapters, 8 through 12, um, let me just kind of give you a, a, a broad understanding once more of this apocalyptic literature um, that Daniel is considered, especially these latter chapters. Uh, let me give you this point. The visions of Daniel are both a retelling and a foretelling of history. Read that again, let it sink in. The visions of Daniel are both a retelling and a foretelling of history. It retells history, but it's also prophetic, and it's looking forward to history that has yet to transpire. Um, again, I've, I've referred to it as apocalyptic literature. That is what it is widely held to be, apocalyptic. Um, and the idea of apocalypse literally translated has the idea of an unveiling, uh, a, a pulling back of the curtain. Um, so think about a play, a stage, if you've ever been to one of those. I actually never have, believe it or not. I go to the movies. Um, but when, when curtains are drawn and everything is covered and you can't see what's behind the curtain, the idea of apocalypse is drawing back, pulling back of the curtain so that you can see behind it and see what's going on. Um, ideas of apocalyptic literature are, of course, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, uh, aspects of the Thessalonian books, some in John's epistles. Um, but this idea of God's plan being shown yes. to a man in history for us to learn from. Oh, man, that's a cough. It just made me worried for a second. Um, so God's plan being revealed. Yes. Chapter 8. Let me just summarize for you really quick. Uh, chapter 8, if you go and you read it, it's another vision concerning the kingdom of both the kingdoms of the Medo-Persian Empire and the Gre Grecian Empire. So we have Cyrus and Darius who are recorded in this book, as we've read a little bit about, the guy who was in charge when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then when you jump to the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, you have King Cyrus who's in charge. He's the Persian true overlord of the entire empire because the Medes were kind of a, 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 an under empire to them that partnered with them. Anyway, so that, that's the king of the time during Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Chapter 8 is giving Daniel a vision before this actually comes to pass. King uh, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, or the under king of Babylon, the son of the actual king Nebuchadnezzar, is in charge. So the Medo-Persians haven't yet come to power, and they're fighting the Babylonians as we talked about. And Daniel gets one of these many visions. And whereas in the first vision with the four beasts, the Medo-Persians were likely considered the great bear that Daniel saw, if you read in chapter 7, that had three ribs in its mouth and it was devouring flesh. Here, it's actually referred to as a ram with two great horns and another little horn. 
um, and the angel at the time comes and gives an interpretation to Daniel, but while there's this ram, there's also this goat that comes up, and it's greater, and it absolutely demolishes the ram, uh, and in case you were wondering, yes, this is where we get the idea of goat language for sports analogies. Who is the greatest of all time? Look at Daniel chapter 8. The answer will be given to you. I'm kidding. Um, the argument is not found for who is the greatest, whether it be Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Tom Brady or Floyd Mayweather. Go down the list. Um, the greatest of all time, actually, at least according to Daniel's vision, the goat, the literal goat, is referring to Alexander the Great, who in the previous vision was the leopard uh, with four heads and wings, who was swift. And we know Alexander the Great Hellenized the entire world. He had done something that no other kingdom at the time had done. He had taken over the known world with such swiftness, and he had Hellenized it. In other words, he had brought everyone into one common culture. One norm. While everybody still had their other cultural norms, there was one that everybody would understand, kind of like America today. We as Americans go to other countries, and unless you grew up with a particular ethnic culture that spoke another language, or you yourself decided to learn another language, you probably won't speak the languages of the world go, uh, around, the plate, around the world. But you go to another country, most of those countries speak their primary language, and they speak English as a secondary language. It's kind of like how America has so permeated its cultural norms and languages throughout the language throughout the world. It's similar to what Alexander the Great with the Grecian Empire did. Now, he's supposed to be the goat, um, and then from him, four, his kingdom splits up after he dies. He dies at a young age, not too much older than I am, bored because there's nowhere left else to conquer, uh, ends up getting sick and dies. Don't know if it was depression or if he was poisoned. We don't know. Um, but he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he dies. And then from him, his kingdom splits up into four sub-kingdoms, sub and then from their infighting, it remains two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom, and we'll come back to that in a second. But regardless, this is the idea, this prophetic unveiling of Daniel's new vision that kind of zooms in on these two empires. So it goes from the four beasts to just these two beasts, um, and then we jump to chapter 9. Now, probably a little uh, over a month ago, probably two months ago now, I preached a message, um, and it was on, if, if you want to take notes, I'm going to encourage you to take notes if you want to go back and, and listen to it, uh, because I thought it was an important message. Uh, but it was on August 27th, and the sermon title is called, For Your Glory and Not Mine. For Your Glory and Not Mine. I preached through Daniel chapter 9. It's very practical. It has all to do with prayer. Um, and essentially, chapter 9 is a powerful historical retelling of Daniel one day reading scripture, Jeremiah chapter 20, realizing the promise of God that was made, and then saying, okay, God, you said it would be roughly 70 years, and then you would come and deliver us out of exile in Babylon. It's been about 70 years. I'm an old man now. Let's get to it. And he starts praying and calling out to God and repenting. Um, and then it says an angel came and spoke to him. So it's great. I encourage you go. Go to our YouTube, Glad Tidings AOG, literally Glad, Space Tidings, Space AOG, uh, and look for For Your Glory and Not Mine. All right, so that's chapter 9. Chapters 10 through 12, I have no idea how to summarize this for you. Read it, and you'll get what I'm saying. Um, I, I don't know how you use this for a sermon. All of the commentators that I read... Uh, 
that, 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 I, that I look to, some primary sources, some present day sources, ancient, and then contemporary, all of them, it was like, I don't even know what I'm reading. It's like everybody who's even a scholar about these last chapters understands it, but doesn't know how to write it for the context of a local church. So that's why we're summarizing it, but I would encourage you, read it. To summarize broadly, chapter 10 has a lot to do with angelic warfare. Um, I'm going to read some sections of it for you. It's not all about that. It's a lot about um, the supernatural, but has a lot to do with angelic warfare. Chapter 11 really is not, it's a vision, but it's more of the interpretation of the vision. Very detailed that talks about the strife and the fighting between two kingdoms, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom, which is the now left divided two kingdoms of uh, the Grecian Empire before the Roman Empire becomes the dominant empire. It's the tail end of the leopard with four heads and wings or the goat. So that's chapter 11. It's about human war and it's got a lot of scandals in it and lying and fighting. And then chapter 12, everything ends. It's the end. It's literally the end of all things. And it's not quite as triumphant and joyful as the book of Revelation, which talks more in depth about Jesus and the lamb that was slain and God being instituted. It kind of just ends with like, War, strife, scandal, brokenness, that's it. And if you have seen, as we talked about last week, and you read throughout these chapters, you'll see points in these chapters where Daniel self-discloses how he is feeling and the state of his body. And he keeps saying in intervals, I was so worried, I couldn't sleep, I was sick to my stomach. Even though I had the interpretation, I still didn't understand it. It was a nightmare. And he was getting vision after vision after vision. So let's pick up and read. Let's let's go to chapter 10. And let me just read for you some portions of it, just to give you an idea of what's going on. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks, got the vision, and then mourned for three weeks. So it wasn't a good dream. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Now, I know some of you do not want to go on that type of fast, <laughs> a lotionless fast. Um, I can get away with it. I'm, I'm greasy. I'm good. Um, but he, this is a man who lives in a desert, who is Middle Eastern, who needs lotion, and there's no shame in that. And he's saying, I was so distraught, I didn't take care of myself. I was so worried and overwhelmed by what I saw. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. When you are so stressed and so worried, you can't even eat. You're not taking care of yourself. You are overwhelmed because of what's going on in life. Daniel receives a vision from God. And this is what it does to him. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 11. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen 
with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Watch this. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. Something real and tangible was in the room. There was a presence in the room. Daniel saw what it was, but nobody else knew what it was. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, a.k.a. he passed out. And my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Uh, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, um, I think the, the truth of that statement is profound, and it's all the more profound in light of the context of Daniel being terrified because of the presence of the Almighty God that is speaking to him. I think it even gives more weight when we think about phrases like, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, where it's like a warm and cuddly, cozy feeling, and it is an amazing thing. But it's in light of this almighty, ferocious, great ruler who says you are esteemed. And when someone like that says you are esteemed, wow. It's not just a, a fun little hallmark bumper sticker. Jump to verse 20 and 21. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So you might be reading that and a little bit out of context be thinking, oh, this is more of the warfare between the north and the south. Pretty much it's unanimous amongst biblical scholars, even those that are kind of uncomfortable with exploring supernatural phenomenons, that this is clearly in context speaking of angelic beings. So this prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, the one who's speaking to Daniel, who's saying, I was delayed by the prince of Persia. There was some sort of quite literally spiritual warfare taking place that as Daniel was praying, messengers from heaven were sent to deliver a message to him that he's receiving. And the angel is saying, I'm sorry, I was delayed because I was caught up with the prince of Persia. Um, so there's something going on here that it's visions that are showing ideas or representations of actual kings and kingdoms, and there are literal, supernatural, divine forces, both good and evil, at work behind the scenes in this book. So one more time, let's, let's jump back to the chapter 8 previous uh, vision about the, the goat and the ram, and let me just now, once again, come back and show you Daniel's disposition. Um, and again, it's not the last time you read through the chapters. He, consi he consistently has 
uh, the, this, the outcome of how he's feeling. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. And I want to hone in on that last portion of that verse. He did not understand it. Think about how much Daniel is seeing. He's being told it's crazy, it's weird, it's all over the place, but he's being given interpretations by the messengers of God as to what it means, and yet he still is struggling to comprehend in spite of an explanation. So, let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that everything that happens in our world and everything that happens in your world, personal life, can be explained with a material, scientific explanation. Don't raise your hand. I mean, you, you, you can, you know, proudly say yes or no if you want to in your heart right now and talk about it afterwards, but just think about that. Do you believe that everything that happens in the world or in your personal world has to be explained through material explanation? It has to make sense in order for it to be real, in order for it to be understood and real in my life, it has to have logic to it. It has to. And I have to be able to wrap my head around it. So there's the question. Uh, let me throw something at you that I actually thought was really interesting. I am certainly not a scientist. Far from it. Um, but I read uh, an article on CNN that talked about, looked like this big old, like, lightning bolt that was breaking into a bunch of different uh, sub-lightning particles, um, and it was an article all about something called cosmic rays. Anybody know what a cosmic ray is? Maybe maybe some of you do. Some of you, if, if you don't, you're in good company, because I had no idea what cosmic rays were until I read this article. Um, just in brief, cosmic rays are charged particles that travel through space and rain down on Earth constantly. They carry information about powerful forces and events taking place millions of light years away. Two of the biggest recorded high-energy cosmic rays uh, have been named. The one that the article was about touched down in Utah in 2021, and scientists have been uh, analyzing it, and the article has now come out two years later after a lot of analyzation. They called it a Amaterasu. Uh, which is out of an anime, but that comes from Japanese lore. Um, and it is the, the topic of this conversation. And it is the second highest energy cosmic ray that has been recorded to have touched down on the Earth uh, other than the highest recorded cosmic energy that was literally called in 1991, Oh My God. That's what they named this cosmic ray. Oh My God. Um, these cosmic rays, like the two of these, are thought to be related to the most energetic phenomena in the universe. Such as those involving black holes, gamma ray bursts, and active galactic nuclei, whatever that is. But the biggest discovered so far appear to originate, these two, Amaterasu and, oh my God, uh, they appear to originate, appear to originate, notice the language of this, scientist, journalist, uh, appears to originate from voids or empty space where no violent celestial events have taken place. 
It's further recorded that they believe without question that these great uh, cosmic rays have come, originated from outside of our galaxy, outside of the Milky Way. It's fascinating to think about something coming from another galaxy, outside of our own galaxy, billions of light years away, coming and finding its way to Earth. Uh, and mind you, you can't see cosmic rays. It's um, recorded by special scientific devices, but it's not visible to the naked human eye. And yet, the power of these cosmic rays, we cannot contrive, we cannot imagine, we cannot replicate. It is beyond conception. It is, it is unconceivable how these originate. These incredible energetic rays traveling billions of light years away from different galaxies. It is inconceivable to the greatest scientists, to the greatest minds in our world, where they actually come from and how they came to be. We just don't know. That's the outcome. We just don't know. There are assumptions that are made based on deductive reasoning, but we just don't actually know. We cannot give a definitive answer as to where these occurrences originate. We just don't know. So, this is something science cannot explain. We live in a post-enlightened era, we live in a world where enlightenment is God. We live in a place where if you don't understand it, therefore it must not have weight in your life. If it cannot be scientifically, rationally quantified, it's not real. It's not worth taking up headspace or space in my life. Understand your history. Because if you're really proud about being an enlightened thinker, Understand that before the Enlightened period, generations, cultures, worlds of people had no problem thinking and dwelling on things that they couldn't explain. It almost sounds like while there was so much good that came out of the Enlightenment, it also made us afraid and it made us less open and less real about what's going on in the world. It limited us because now it's confined to our own conceivable imagination. And I don't know about you, but while there are great dudes like Einstein, uh, I'm not an Einstein, and it's really limiting to have to look to myself for the answers for everything, or the ability to quantify answers for everything. So something like this, cosmic rays, science can't explain. There's no conceivable force in the universe that we can properly measure to calculate this immense natural phenomenon at work. So there's something going on here, something that we can't explain, but something that's clearly happening. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it got here. We can't replicate it, but it's happening. Let me read for you a scripture that I read for you last week, Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I am not equating cosmic rays to evil forces. It could be, for all we know. 
But I'm not making a point here today for you to say that those cosmic rays are angels coming down just like War of the Worlds when the, when they, when the aliens were coming down through the lightning to go to their ships underground. That's not what I'm saying, as cool as that would be. Um, what I am saying is this. It's a question. What do you do with things you don't understand? Think about that. What, what, what do you do? When you come up against something you don't understand, what does our culture do with things it doesn't quite understand? Um, let me just jump to uh, one scripture. It won't be on the screens for you, but in Acts chapter 2, as the people of God were waiting in the upper room, uh, interceding and praying, waiting for the promise of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit finally comes. It falls in tongues of fire, and they all start speaking in what we describe tongues, a heavenly language, but to the people around, it was known languages. Now, mind you, these people are Galileans. They're of a particular ethnic group of people that speak a particular language. And in the events of Acts chapter 2, it says that when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire fell on them, that they spoke in a host of languages. The languages of so many different cultures and peoples around. And people outside were hearing all of this vocal praise of speech in many languages. And they're starting to try to surmise what's going on. It says people are kind of curious. And then there's a group of people that in their curiosity say, don't pay them any attention. They're drunk. Which I'm sorry, but if you're an enlightened thinker, that's the stupidest thing you could ever surmise. How on earth would somebody who's an unlearned Galilean, which Galileans were considered, who were not necessarily the most trained linguistically of individuals in society, now a group of them are speaking every known language to the world at that point. You get drunk and it happens. You all have too much fun getting drunk and you tell yourself that you're supermen when it happens. It doesn't work that way. But what they're doing is they're trying to rationalize it. They're confronted with something they don't understand. And now they have to make it work. Because when I conceive of something that my mind is not capable of processing, I can either be curious, I can think and start to see and ask questions that, you know what, there might be something outside of me greater than me, more intelligent than me, or I can try and rationalize it and make it fit within my own conceptualization of how the world works. They're just drunk. Um, so let's, let's jump to our culture. What happens today in our culture if you say something extremely controversial? What happens? Do you all know? You get canceled. That's the thing going around right now. That is the trending thing to do, whether it is to cancel someone or to get canceled. I think getting canceled is actually getting more, it's trending more right now. Get canceled because it's just so stupid. Um, but it's the idea. If you say something controversial in today's culture that's not politically correct or goes against what apparently the masses say is the way, according to Fox News or CBN or CNN or whatever, um, if you say something controversial, you get canceled. I'm here to make a claim. All right? You can argue it. You don't have to believe it. But here's what I believe. Cancel culture is born from a place of insecurity. It's born from a place of insecurity. That's right. 
Um, in other words, you can't bear what others are saying because your mind is incapable of processing what was said. And that's not an offensive statement. It's not to be a belittling statement. It's not me saying, oh, those people are stupid. I'm saying it as a matter of fact for all of us as human beings. There might be things that at a current stage of life, our minds are incapable of processing. Like a toddler, like an adolescent, like a teenager, like a middle-aged person, like somebody who isn't yet married, doesn't fully understand things about marriage, like somebody who doesn't have kids, like as opposed to someone who does have kids, like your grandparents, like you're a woman, a man, a husband, a spouse, you're old. There are just certain things at certain points that our minds just can't process fully. So what I'm saying is that cancel culture is a response to the insecurity of I just can't fully process that yet. And we haven't learned to be okay with the fact that my mind just doesn't know right now. Maybe you will grow to understand it, or maybe, like when it comes to the things of God, there are immeasurable aspects of his nature that we will never be able to conceive and understand. And that's why he's God. But if you cannot humble yourself to be okay with the fact that there are just some things that are not to be explained, or there are just some things that aren't explainable yet or conceivable or understandable yet, then you're just going to, oh, they're drunk. Oh, they're a bunch of religious fanatics. Oh, you're, you're, you're just too young. Oh, you're just too old. Oh, you're just too white. Oh, you're, 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 you're just... This is the culture that we're living in right now. Um, you can't bear what others are saying because your mind is incapable of processing what was said. Again, as I said before, it could be because of a traumatic experience in your life. The neurological studies surrounding trauma are immense and they are clear that trauma really messes up our brains and it keeps us from being able to process things. What would it be like for you to be able to come up against something especially theologically related that you are incapable of processing and you're discerning right now and trying to understand, is this really God? Is God real? Is God at work in my life? And you're having trouble actually wrapping your mind around it. And maybe others around you are fully capable of wrapping their minds around it. And you're frustrated about it. Maybe your response ought not to be from a place of insecurity in comparison to others that leads you to say, well, God must not be real. When maybe if you actually understand your history and go back and understand your story, you'd be able to see, I have some trauma in my life. It's not that I'm stupid. It's not that others are better than me. It's not that God doesn't even want me to understand this. It's just hard for my mind to be able to process this because of what was done to me when I was a child. That's one way to look at it. Um, or it might not have anything to do with trauma or a lack of learning or training or smarts. It might just be good, plain, old-fashioned pride. Where you don't care, you want things your way. And if that's you, I just humbly, humbly beg of you, humble yourself before the Lord and under his mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. But other than that, I can't really say much to you uh, because you have to make that decision. So Daniel is confronted with a history that he doesn't know what to do with. It's too much. 
It's hard to make sense of this. He's facing a history told in a nightmarish, vivid depiction of all these weird animals and things happening and kingdoms warring. He just doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't understand it. And thank God I am living on the other side of the cross and I have the New Testament to teach me what Daniel wasn't privileged to see. Because a lot of you want to see God. Daniel saw God. Look what happened. I'm good. Um, I got the New Testament. I'm happy. Um, It's given to me a nice little neat work. But here's the point that Paul talks about that, again, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against the easily conceivable, understandable, right in front of me, flesh and blood, quantifiable, biological, physiological mechanics of how this universe works. It's not. Our struggle is not with that. And if you're so caught up in trying to work within this enlightenment model and fight against these physical forces, at least in this way that we're talking about, you're fighting the wrong battle. It's it's wasted time and energy. Your struggle is against things working behind the scenes that God has given to Daniel. He is revealed. He's pulled back the curtain and said, here's what's going on behind the scenes. I know you're living in this fallen kingdom with these politicians and these kings in this world. All of it is having real, actual implications on everyday life but let me show you what's actually going on behind the scenes and you'll get a better picture of how this world is working. So the point is this, unseen forces have shaped and are shaping history. My history, your history, our nation's history, this world's history. It has shaped and it is continually shaping our story. Um, Think about the story of Job. You all remember Job in the Old Testament. If you don't, it's a great book. Read it. Just buckle up and prepare yourself because it's pretty brutal until the end. Um, the story of Job actually starts um, all with Satan and God having this conversation behind the scenes. And in fact, the story of Job is all about Satan getting unleashed to wreak havoc upon all of Job's life. It's an unseen, dark, evil force at work behind the scenes, having literal, physical, real-life, actual implications, but the driving force behind it all is evil, is the devil himself. That's how the whole story of Job starts. Um, so here's ultimately the point that, that I want you to think about. Maybe... Just maybe, there's more to your story. Maybe more than you want to know. Don't cancel it. Don't write it off. Don't reject it. You don't, you don't have to embrace it and say, this is who I am because this is my past. That's not the message that I'm giving you here. I'm saying, look at your story and how it's been written. Look at the story of this world and how it's been written. Then you'll see a little bit more of how you've been influenced to become the person that you are today. And and listen, this is for everybody. This isn't just for the person here who might not really be following God. Um, It's definitely for you, but it's also for those of us that have grown up in the church. I'm a product of my history. And I've got to recognize that. And the question is, do I understand who I am today? 
And do I want to stay that person? Or do I want to give that person fully to God and say, God, here I am. This is who I am. Or this is is who I am. Take me. Mold me. Use me. All right. Chapter 11, like I said, uh, there's this war between these two kingdoms. Um, and we can actually surmise that what is being referred to here historically is roughly between the years 536 before Christ BC up to the years 176 BC before Christ. Um, This is accounting, again, the Persian Empire into the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great, and then kind of really hones in and is representative of a man that we would call historically Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, so what's actually really cool that I think it's, it's a little bit nerdy, but it's really important for those of you struggling to, to understand the veracity of Scripture, this is just one point to kind of tuck away for your, your own sake. Is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? Or is it a bunch of made-up stories? Um, what, what, what's awesome about this actual chapter of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, um, is that when you compare it to any ancient historical annal or account, it is the most detailed and the most accurate of any historical account. There are aspects of Daniel that aren't accounted for in ancient historical secular annals of Greece or Roman or Persian empires that people would look at the book of Daniel and say, well, it doesn't line up with what was written there. And now because of modern archaeological finds, they're actually seeing, oh, Daniel's actually been saying this all along, and it's recorded it. Um, It is so historically accurate and precise of an account of um, some things that happened in these empires. So read chapter 11. It's not detailed in the sense that it's going to give you names and dates, but in what it represents and what actually happened. Um, And what's funny is modern scholars, uh, secular modern scholars that are actual still uh, biblical scholars, Uh, actually refuse to accept this as prophecy because they say there's no way this is prophecy because it's too accurate. And we don't accept prophecy, so it's not prophecy. It must have been written much later after all these events happened, and now that they've happened, somebody can write it down. But the fact is, this was written long before any of these events happened. It's considered prophecy. That's amazing that God is giving a word that's so historically accurate and utterly terrifying to Daniel. It must have been real. And it's amazing and challenging for us to stop and think there's so much veracity to this word that it points to the fact that it is the word of God. I better listen, and I better lean in. Verses 5 through 35 of this chapter, again, talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. Um, Boiling it down, again, Alexander the Great is likely the first king um, who does what he wants, conquers the whole known world, and then after him come four, and then it goes down to two. Like I said, the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom historically is what is called the Seleucid kingdom, and the southern kingdom is what we call the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom. These two kingdoms are, according to chapter 11, always at war with each other, always fighting to gain absolute power. Um, They try to, at times, make an alliance with each other, by marrying off their daughters to each other 
and again, trying to make an alliance, but they just end up going right back to fighting. Again, you're not going to read the details of this in chapter 11, but if you are a historical nerd and you want to go and read ancient historical narratives of this time, of the Persian Empire, the Mede Empire, the Israelite Empire, you're going to see all of these accounts in detail that Daniel's already prophesying about. Um, but they try to make an alliance, ends terribly, they get right back to fighting. Look at verse 16 of the 11th chapter. It says this, The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Notice that title, the beautiful land. This is referring to the land of Israel, specifically to the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, uh, the, the capital of Israel and home to the Israelites. Now, I'm not making too many implications here other than this that I want you to think about. Turn on the news and see what's happening between Israel and Hamas. In Daniel chapter 11, it is talking about the beautiful land always being sieged and at war. I fully recognize the atrocities that have happened in this country and in so many other countries to so many ethnic groups. And what I'm about to say is not to be a minimization of any of those atrocities. But what I do have to say is there has never been historically a group, an ethnic group of people that have ever been so persecuted as the Jewish people. You go through history throughout time. They are constantly being persecuted and not just with anti-Semitic language. Their country is always trying to be sieged by another people. Multiple holocausts of people. His, Hitler just gave us the worst one. There are historical records of constant attempts to eradicate the Jewish people. They are historically the most oppressed people in all of human history. Again, that's not to minimize any other ethnic group that has been oppressed. It's simply to say the Bible is showing us something here in this prophetic historical word that this land is going to be sieged and oppressed and its people persecuted. And the Bible continues to give us that narrative that time and again, Israel is persecuted, oppressed, enslaved, killed, murdered, etc., etc. So what I want to say to you once again, for the sake of your own edification as a believer or for the sake of an apologetic to you as an unbeliever that the events of today were prophesied about 2,500 years ago. You turn on the news, the Bible is talking about it. 2,500 years ago. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? I'm really glad that I've given my life to Jesus and that I've committed myself to the most reliable, trustworthy, logical, in spite of its insurmountable and inconceivable logic ways. So, focusing in a little bit more on the Northern Kingdom, that's talked about here historically. There comes a man out of not the direct lineage of Alexander the Great, but again, Antiochus Epiphanes, who becomes the ruler of the northern kingdom. And he is a man that is known for his eccentric and evil ways. Um, there's Greek language that is used to describe sensuality that literally has the idea of a Roman going into a public square and literally stripping down butt naked and flaunting himself just for the heck of it, because he wants to, because he can do what he wants. 
That's not me. Um, because Evie says Justin does what he wants. That's not me. That's not that idea. Um, but that's the idea of sensuality. When somebody would use that Greek word to describe a person, it's, it's an utterly detestable, um, you know, no self-respect and no respect for others around you, uh, uncomfortable display of your body. It comes from the actual accounts of this man, Antiochus Epiphanes who was recorded in historical annals as going randomly to theaters and in the middle of the theater doing things like getting up on stage and stripping butt naked and dancing. Just because that's who this guy is. Um, he was on a war path. He really had no money and found out that other places were that were rich would be good places to go and lay siege to and try and sack and overthrow and rob their treasuries. And then a little old up-and-coming empire called the Roman Empire that wasn't quite at its height sent one of its generals to him on his warpath and said, Antiochus, that's it, you're done, don't do this anymore or else. So this man, whose name uh, quite literally means God manifest, he named himself that, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest, God in the flesh, I am God in the flesh, um, pouting like a toddler who can't beat this big and upcoming Roman Empire, says, I know, I've heard of a little old kingdom, the, the little kingdom that's been rebuilding, rebuilding itself from the time of uh, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor, who uh, allowed them to go back the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, to rebuild their temple and their walls, and they're slowly rebuilding. And I know that according to their cultural laws, um, that they take a tenth of their, their, all of their income and they deposit it into the temple treasury in worship of their God. Man, they must have got a lot of money. So, outside of the Roman authorities and without their knowledge, he goes to this seemingly who cares about them type of people and he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem about 150 years before the events of Jesus' birth when the Roman Empire come to power. He goes into the city, he overthrows it, he enslaves the people, and he tries to utterly disgrace their ethnic norms, which is all rooted in their religious norms. When it comes to Jewish people, there is no separation between ethnic and religion. It's one and the same. Their ethnicity, their cultural norms, it all comes from the Mosaic Law. Um, it, it, it's not a distinct separation between the two. Who they are is rooted in their faith in God. Um, and he wants to turn all of that around on them. So he does things like tries to institute reverse male circumcision. I'm not going to talk about that for you for obvious reasons. I think just by the phrase you might think in your head, oh, Wow sick. Yeah. He's trying to turn everything that the Jewish people understand themselves in and embody against them. Um, and what he does, as I've mentioned before, is after he overthrows the actual temple of God, he goes into the Holy of Holies, which no person other than the high priest was supposed to go, and he sacrifices upon the altar a pig. And then he forces everybody to partake and to worship it. Otherwise, they're going to be killed. He is what many Jews of the time believed Daniel was talking about when he talked about the abomination that causes desolation. In chapter 11, it accounts for all these details. It's talking about this ruler of the north that will come and lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, sacking its temple and defacing it. And then he's called the abomination that causes desolation. 
He's also who is referred to as the Antichrist by some biblical scholars and by some biblical writers. So this is who the people of the time actually experienced. But Daniel, hundreds of years before this man came, had an unveiling moment from God. A pulling back of the curtain says this is history that is yet to be. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through nine say this, because this is what happened. What about today? Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. Kids, listen, like seriously, listen. It says that in the last days, defining characteristics of people that don't serve God will also be disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Look at this, look at this. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Stop! Right there. Post-enlightened culture that we're all a part of. It says a mark of fallen people will be those that are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jobbers opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very far because as in this case, but as in the case of those men, their father will be clear to everyone. So, don't answer. I'll answer what I believe. But um, are demonic, unseen forces driving systems behind the scenes that will result in the collapse of all societies as we know it? Yes. Yes. Maybe not in 2023, but yes, it's going to happen. Look at history. It happens. Every culture throughout history, America is the, one of the longest standing societies uh, that hasn't fallen yet, and historically, <laughs> we're due. I, don't, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> Uh, but I'm just saying, historically, we're due. So, one more time, let me just ask you, can you see why Daniel was so worried? There's merit to his worry. Some of you are probably like, Pastor, my goodness, I wish I would have known you were going to keep talking about this because I wouldn't have come to church today. Because, geez. Yeah, it's one of those portions of Scripture that we've got to go through and not around. Um, we live in an age... I don't normally do this and say we live in an age, but listen, we do. We live in an age where we expect everything to be fixable. So like this, watch. If your teeth aren't straight, go get braces. Fix it. Um, if you don't like your body shape, try cosmetic surgery. Reshape yourself. If your job frustrates you, find one that fits you. Um, if you can't get along with your spouse, get a different one. Whatever our problem is, we have been trained to believe that someone out there or something has the answer that will fix it. Um, this is true on a national level. It's true on a global scale as well as a personal one. Um, 
Now, whether the problem is global warming, world poverty, or bad governments, we think we can fix it. I was going to get really, really pessimistic, and I'm sorry, Um, but we think that with enough time, money, and the right people, we can fix just about anything. Uh, Liberals, this is just a broad statement, but liberals might think that socialism is a fix. Conservatives might think that more capitalism is a fix. There's always an answer that will fix the problem of evil, but really the question is, what do you do with evil? What do you do when you're confronted with the fact that this here in front of me is just dark and oppressive and I cannot fathom or surmise or understand why or where or how this happened? What do you do with evil? Evil is unimaginable and powerful. With deep roots and sharp claws. And listen to me. No amount of education, activism, or political reform will ever eliminate it. None of those things are bad, but no amount of any of those things will ever deal with the problem of evil. None of them will. There is no hope in any of those things to overcome the deepest, darkest problems that are working behind the scenes. But when you look behind the veil, as Daniel was given the privilege of doing. In chapter 12, when the end of all things is being spelled out, he sees a force at work that is contending with evil, that is working against evil. When all other human instrumentation fails, there is one at work fighting evil. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, say this. uh, At the time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered multitudes who sleep in the dust are dead, will awake, they will be resurrected, some to everlasting life, unfortunately, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel is given a peek behind the curtain, and here's ultimately what he sees will be the result of the end, that there will be a resurrection, and there will be a reckoning. All who have died will be raised to life, good and bad, and they're going to be judged by one who has the right and the power to judge absolutely. And there will be a reckoning for all evil in this world. All demonic forces, all Hitlers, all evil people, all oppressors, all those who enact injustice with pride and arrogance and love to do so, all who are children of the devil, all evil will have a reckoning. Every injustice, every lie, every evil that's been established will be judged. So here's the point that I'll close with. All of history is redeemed in Christ. This is what we believe here at this church. All of history is redeemed in Christ. Let me give you 
a definition of redemption as it's used in Scripture. It's literally the act of buying back or rescuing something or someone that was lost or enslaved. Daniel, you're a people that lost your identity as slaves in Babylon. And Daniel, I unfortunately got to show you that the world isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. And evil is going to continue to have its day for a time. But here is the beauty of the message of the gospel. God and his son Jesus Christ decided that we needed a Messiah long before we ever realized it. And Jesus Christ, look, came in the flesh. That means he entered into history. Our story, the world's story, all that has been and all that will be until he rolls up the scroll, Revelation and says, it's done, no more. Jesus redeems all that has been and all that will be, no matter what evil has contrived and no matter what victories evil has won. So you're, you're here today, and you might be thinking, how can I be redeemed? How can my story be changed? The things that I have done, how on earth could that ever be rewritten? Jesus Christ redeems you. He redeems your history. The old has gone. The new has come. Your story is forever rewritten in Jesus. And you get to be who he has called you to be. And you're not marked by the enemy anymore. You're not marked by your trauma anymore. You're not marked by your brokenness anymore. You were and now you are in Christ, who he says you are. Holy and righteous in his sight. Beloved by God most high. This is the gospel. All of history. World history. Global history. National history. Personal history. It's redeemed in Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me on your feet today? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks going through um, the story of our Savior. And we're going to press into our Savior. I know we've had some heavy weeks going through the book of Daniel because we've had to see all that's going wrong and that has been prophesied and now things are just harder and harder and harder. It's time for us to look to our Savior. It's time for us to really embrace all of who Jesus is. And we're going to do that in the weeks to come. We're going to look at prophecies about Jesus. We're going to look at fulfilled prophecies about Jesus. We're going to look at end time prophecies about Jesus. It's going to be a great continuation of what we've already been looking at. Can I pray for you? Jesus, 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 it's your name, it's your name, it's a strong and mighty tower, the righteous run in and are saved, our fortress, our defense, Jesus, right now I pray that as we fully embrace you, we would experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
Jesus, I pray that we would recognize how well fortified we are, that no fiery arrow of the enemy will be able to pierce us, but that we are so protected, we are so beloved by a God who we don't deserve, that we couldn't even comprehend it. Jesus, I pray that we would fall before you. Our spirits, our bodies, all that we are would be prostrated before you. We would have such a reverence for you above all else, recognizing you as the way, the truth, and the life in whom and for whom all things have been created. Jesus, life is found in you. Hope is found in you. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, wholeness, freedom, patience. Love, it's found in you. Jesus, I'm praying right now for those that are just struggling. Those that are holding on to the insecurity of what they are incapable of comprehending. Right now, those that are struggling to absolutely humble themselves before you, those that are too prideful or too hurt to trust that it's okay to let go of control and allow you to take control. I'm praying for those people in this place today now, God. Right now, I pray that you would work on their hearts. If you're that person in this place today, I just invite you, call on Jesus in your heart, with your mouth, however you want to. Call on him in these few moments. Say, Jesus, here I am. I struggle. Be real with him right now. Tell him your struggles. Tell him your reservations. Tell him all that's in you right now that you just don't know what to do with. And if you're here today and you're a person that has learned to embrace Jesus, can I ask you, just take a moment, pray for everybody around you in your life, those that maybe you know or you don't know, struggle to humble themselves before the Lord. Would you just take a few moments in your own words, pray for those people in your life? Jesus. Maybe your spouse is the one that you need to be praying for right now. Would you all just join me right now as we broadly pray, whether, whether it's your spouse or somebody else's spouse. And you don't even have to know them. I just want to ask you to believe in prayer with me right now for unbelieving spouses. Jesus, right now I lift up to you our spouses those that are struggling to embrace you, those that are just so filled with hurt, 
or pride or, or trauma or, or just uh, a, an inconceivable notion that they, that they have to be able to understand and comprehend every aspect of who you are. God, I pray for them right now. I pray for what's going on in their heart. Jesus, I pray that you would radically, radically, I, I mean radically, overtake them in this moment. Wrestle with them in this moment. Right now, I pray, God. And Jesus, I pray that they would be liberated from the lies of the enemy that's causing them to hold on to so much pain, so much isolation, so much hurt, so much enslavement. Show them that they are slaves right now in this moment, but that in you, they're free, Jesus. Just want to keep taking a moment right now and be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you don't need to do what I'm about to ask you to do as a way to free somebody. Don't hear what I'm not saying, that if you don't do it, the person is eternally condemned to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think there are some of you here today that have someone on your heart you want to boldly cry out to God for help. And I want to encourage you to do it right now in the presence of men and women that love you and that honor God and that will not judge you, but give us the opportunity to support you in prayer. Take a moment. Maybe you already know and you just need this little push. Let me just say to you right now, you have permission to pray for them. If you're here today and you want to pray for somebody, we're going to take a few moments and you can lead out for all to hear if you're willing and pray for that person right now. Jesus. And it caused division amongst families right Jesus. now in the name of Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Father God, 
Yes, Jesus. Tell us, Lord God, and speak to you, Lord God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, God, for lost loved ones, Lord God. Jesus. Father God, those this morning, Lord God, this afternoon, God, Jesus. that are broken, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Jesus God, heal those that are broken, Jesus. God, for your words that are broken, Hallelujah. Lord, in a contrite spirit, you would know why to start. So Jesus. I am praying for all those that are broken, Lord Hallelujah. God, Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus. Cover them with your blood, Lord God. We thank you for what you're about to come. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Move, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Set people free, God. Set people free, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Yes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. There are some things that were just prayed in this moment about people that might be struggling with depression or worry. Maybe you're here today and you have people that you know need God to help them, not just with their existential crises and their questions about the way the world works and, and why things are happening in the world, but they need God because of physical healing in their lives mental healing in their lives, relational healing in their lives. There might be a host of things that you know are found in God, but those individuals that you know that you have in your mind right now, just they don't, they don't know it like you know it. And maybe you're here today and you just don't know how to pray for them or you're just not ready yet to lead out in prayer. That's okay. I want to give one more invitation and I think it will be extremely liberating and edifying for this whole body. I wonder if you know that person today that's in your mind, would you just speak their name out loud right now? 
Larry. Jenny. Amanda. Lauren. Richard. I heard a name back there. Darren Washington. Shawana. Marissa. Lord. If you would join me, we're going we're gonna to pray on behalf of all these names together and lift them up to the Lord. These people are in God's hands. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, would move upon them, would liberate them from brokenness, from hurt, from evil, from pain, from being lost from this dark world. Jesus, right now I'm calling on you, God of the heavens, God of the universe, the great I am, who the enemy trembles before, you who deal with beasts, you who are great, you who are our redeemer, the redeemer of history. Jesus, I call on your name right now, oh ancient of days, I call on your name. And I ask you by your power and by your authority, would you set these people free? Every name that was spoken right now, would you set them free? Every person behind that name, every story that's represented and linked to a name, I pray right now you would show them that there is redemption that is found in you. And that redemption is only found in you, Jesus. There is no one like you. There is no one that can do what you can do. Father, I pray that they would recognize that they are running ceaselessly and aimlessly towards nothing when it's not towards you. Would they recognize that the exhaustion that's upon them is because they've been running aimlessly. They've been living aimlessly. But Jesus, your purpose is given to them and their identity is found in you. So, Father, I pray that they would be liberated right now from darkness, from enslavement, from the enemy's grasp. Deliver them from the claws, the clutches, the shackles of this world. Father, I pray that they would be able to see and hear and even smell a lie from the pit of hell every time it comes across them. Every time they hear it on the news, every time maybe even a family member speaks it over them, maybe a spouse speaks it over them, would they see the lie of the enemy for what it is? Jesus, would, they, would we all avail ourselves to you right now in this moment? We know we have been given a privileged position to be able to see a bit of what's going on behind the curtain. And the work that you are doing. So God, I ask you, come against those spiritual forces of darkness. Holy Spirit. You have worked. You have moved. You have spoken in this place. I pray right now. Would you seal everything that has transpired in this place? Let it be a memory a historical moment in our stories that we would not forget, that we would not so quickly look away from, 
but we would hold on to it. We would cherish it. We would allow this moment to be one of many godly moments that define who we are as a people, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, part of the body of Christ. God, I thank you for your children here in this place. I pray now that you would protect them. I pray that you would watch over them as we continue to live as exiles in Babylon, as we continue to be oppressed by this world. But I also pray that we would not forget that we are just aliens. We are just strangers. We are not residents of this place. Our stay here is temporary. And eternity with you, Jesus, is waiting. Keep that ever on our minds. We praise you, we honor you, and we thank you. And in the mighty name of Jesus, the people of God said, amen. Would you just give God praise for who he is? You are worthy, God. Hallelujah. God bless you. Be well. Merry Christmas. I'm looking forward to the weeks to come with all of you.